So if you open your Bibles uh, to 1 John, comes right after 1 and 2 Peter. I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about why I chose to, for us to turn to this letter uh, now. Um, new believers are usually encouraged to, you know, read the Gospel of John. And that's because it is about the life of Christ. And so it's, it's who He is and what He did. And so it's a really good place to, to point a new believer. Um, the Psalms are also something that people are encouraged to read when they're new believers. And that's because the Psalms um, have such a wide range of emotions that we can all agree with or identify with. Um, you know, in the Psalms, there's, there's peace and contentment, there's fulfillment, there's uh, dancing and singing. But there's also sin and guilt and shame and betrayal and bitterness. So it's just a wide spectrum of emotions that we can all identify with. And so the Psalms create a, uh, they create stability in the life of a believer. And so when you got saved, hopefully someone encouraged you to read the Gospel of John. And when you got saved, hopefully someone encouraged you to read the Psalms. Because the Psalms create a, a foundation. And that's why Christians return to the Psalms for, their, for the rest of their lives. But there's also another letter that people are often recommended, which is 1 John. And that is because new believers need to be assured of their salvation. And that's absolutely what this letter does. Um, in this uh, letter, there is a, a steady citation of evidence that is exhibited in the life of a person who has been saved, of a person who is truly a believer. Um, in other words, uh, you guys, you, you, you don't know what's in my heart. You, you only can see what my life is like. That's the, that's the testimony of what's going on inside. And so uh, as we read through this letter, you will see that there are many things that identify a Christian. Uh, evidence that there has been the new birth. So, uh, as we move through this letter, we're going to recognize that there are a number of hallmarks of salvation in the believer's life uh, that are identified here very specifically. They are like pieces of evidence. And so, uh, you know, as, as we weigh the evidence, does it point to you? As you look at these different hallmarks or things that you can hang your hat on that give evidence of the new birth, if that points to you, then there's assurance. There's assurance of your salvation. But if key pieces of evidence are missing, then there's a problem. Why are key pieces of evidence missing in your life? It could be because you are out of fellowship with God, or it could be that you've never been saved in the first place. And so the evidence can work for you or against you. Earlier this week, I was reflecting on Rose's funeral. And during the service, I proposed a question. I asked them, why don't people go to church? 
Well, the answer is very simple. It's because they don't want to. The, the desire isn't there. So I ask the next question, why is the desire not there? People will go to church on special occasions, but why don't they go on a regular basis? Why is that? It's because they don't have that internal yearning that drives them to go to church like we do. That's because we have been given a new heart. A new heart that desires fellowship with other believers. We have a new heart that desires to read the Bible and to learn more. We want to go to a place where other people are like us that, that pray and believe in Jesus. It drives us to be here. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this is what connects us as the church, as Christians. And so this is why we go to church. We don't go for any other reason. It's, it's, a, it's literally inside of us. It's our true desire to be here. We don't have to manufacture it. We're not obligated. Nobody twisted our arm to come to church. We wanted to come because something has happened inside of us. And so for the person who doesn't want to go to church, there's a problem. That's a problem. It reminded me of when I was encouraged to read 1 John myself when I repented. That was actually 37 years ago to this day, October 18th, 1983. It was on a, a Tuesday in 1983, but it was this date. And I was encouraged to read 1 John. And one of the reasons was because I was so bad. I was a very bad guy. And I got saved. And so someone wanted me to be encouraged to know that I was truly born again. And I quickly began to cherish many of the verses here. I've noticed that as I read it, I almost know what it's going to say ahead of time. It's like memory. So much is committed to memory. So many verses in this letter that are precious to me because of <clears throat> reading it as a new believer. They show me what I used to be and who I am now. I can see the difference. During that time, I used to run around with a group of guys. We would go to different places and share our faith. We carried that cross down Main Street in the pouring rain on Good Friday. The guy in the lower left is Mike Dugan. And my son's middle name is Mike. Named after my good friend. This is why I chose 1 John. It's a very precious book for a Christian. We should all know it very well. So by way of introduction to this letter, John is obviously the author, even though he is not specifically named as the author. There's external evidence and internal evidence that's overwhelming that this is the author. It's John, the apostle. 
The fact that he doesn't name himself is characteristic of him in the first place. The disciple whom Jesus loved. You'll notice as we read through this and, and uh, as we study this letter, you're going to notice that the audience knows him very well. He has a very close relationship with this audience that he's talking to. And we'll notice that he is talking to them with spiritual authority of an apostle. And we also notice that he is an eyewitness. He is an eyewitness to Jesus, but more than that, he knew him personally. As far as the audience goes, the people he's writing to, we do not know who they are. I, I don't want to get too sidetracked with church history, but because uh, it's just tradition, it's not Bible. But tradition has John pastoring Ephesus later and uh, being very closely connected with the churches in Asia Minor. And so this could have been the, the audience. But it doesn't tell us that. Just like the Gospel of John, there is a, it's a general letter, a general epistle that is applicable to all Christians. This could have been written to anybody. Because the only common denominator about this audience that we know for sure is that they are believers. John is writing a letter to Christians. Now, John's Gospel and 1 John both open with a prologue. A lot of letters will start out with a, with a salutation, a greeting, and then there's this nice farewell closing. You don't find that in 1 John. You don't find that in the Gospel of John. They both open with a prologue. And so this morning, uh, I would like for us to look at the prologue. It's the first four verses. So let's read them together. It says, What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with, the, uh, with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Well, right off the bat, as we read this, we are given a couple of reasons for this. We see here that He, he talks about us as uh, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we observe, what we touch with our hands. That's what we have declared to you. And so the we is the apostles. What we saw, what we heard, what we touched, what we observed over a long period of time, this is what we have told you. So we told you. What did we tell you? We told you about Jesus. That and why? We told you so that you might have fellowship along with us. Because our fellowship is with God. Do you see that? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. So that you'll be sharing in the same fellowship that we have. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So we're writing all of this 
so that our joy may be complete. So right off the bat, we're told that this is so that they can have fellowship together. And the second thing is, is so that, they, that their joy, the apostles' joy, our joy, in verse 4, our joy may be complete. Well, that means that Christians experience true joy when all of us are in fellowship with each other and in fellowship with God. That's when we actually have true joy. And I'm going to ask you a test question about that in a little while to see if that's actually true. Is the Bible true? Is God right about that? Or has He got it all wrong? You see, the, the primary purpose of this letter, the primary purpose is for believers to remain in fellowship with God and with each other. That's what the primary objective is of this letter. is for Christians to remain in fellowship with each other and with God. So as we move through 1 John, we're going to find out that that fellowship is being threatened. It's being threatened by the, the teachings and the influence of false teachers. There's a problem. He's writing this letter because there's a problem. There are false teachers you know, we talk about how marijuana is a gateway drug. You know, you don't walk up to somebody and hand them a syringe and all of a sudden they go, this is a really good idea. Oh, that sounds great. I'll give that a try. You've got to get broke into that. It takes a little bit of time. So false teachers don't come at us with just ridiculous notions that we're just going to automatically reject right off the bat. It's clever. It's twisted. It's the doctrine of demons. It's smart and crafty. And they're coming in. And that's what this letter is about. There's a problem. There's false teaching. And John wants them to remain in fellowship with each other and with God. Now, in chapter 2, verse 18, he, John calls these false teachers antichrists. And we all know that there's an Antichrist, a certain person that's going to come. But here, we're talking about people who just oppose the Gospel. If I were to ask you to just you know, write down on a piece of paper, what is the Gospel? You know, let's not eight, use eight pages. You know, what is the Gospel? Can you put it all on one page? Can you do it in a paragraph? How brief of it can you get? And what are the key components? Well, it all centers around the person of Jesus, the person of Christ, who He is and what He accomplished. That's the Gospel. And anti-Christ means that what they are teaching opposes that. It opposes, it opposes who Jesus is in one way or another, or it opposes what it is He's trying to accomplish, what He has accomplished on the cross, what the salvation is. So if you look at uh, cults or false teachings of any kind, they're going to either be attacking who Jesus is as a person, or they're going to be attacking what it is He did, what the salvation is that He's offering. They're going to mess with one of those two things. And we're going to find out that that's what's occurring here. Now, we may not be uh, able, it may not be possible for us to read through 1 John and to collate all of the information 
and systematize exactly what the heresy is, what all of the heretical teachings are that these people were teaching. And one of the reasons is because in chapter 4, verse 1, John says that he's writing to uh, about many false teachers. So there was a wide variety of, of garbage that was being thrown at these people. And so rather than just saying this was the Gnostics, this was the, you know, going to get specific, it's easier for us to just say, you know what, we may not exactly know that, but we can definitely see what it is that John is defending. And so let's take a closer look at this prologue. It opens with, what was from the beginning? Well, what's John talking about? What beginning? Is he talking about Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Is it the beginning of creation? Is that what he's talking about? You know, in creation science, there's the young earth and the old earth. The young earth, the young universe, the old universe. And that's all debated. Well, J. Vernon McGee made a really good point about that. He said, well, before you can really worry about that, you have to accept the fact that God created it. Some people look at this ending of verse 1, word of life. They see that word, word. And they think, well, John wrote this. John opened with a prologue. In the Gospel of John, John opened with a prologue. And in that prologue, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so it opens up talking about Jesus. It talks about how Jesus is eternal. And that when all things were created, Jesus was present and participating because He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word. He was already in existence because He's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's the Father. And the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh. So it's absolutely Jesus that He's talking about in the Gospel of John. Is that what he's talking about here? Well, if we take the entire prologue into context, we, we, we look at the whole thing rather than just that very first phrase, and especially if we take it into the context of the rest of the letter, we can see that John is actually talking about the incarnation. That time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. When Jesus left heaven and came down here with us. That's the beginning. What was from the beginning? It's talking about Jesus. It's not talking specifically about the creation. This is talking about the gospel. When God came down from heaven and dwelt among us when He tabernacled with us. That's what it's talking about. The New Living Translation tries to help us with that. And so, instead of saying what was from the beginning, they put who was from the beginning. And so you can see that 
part of the interpretive process is involved there with the translators trying to help us. And it's, it's because of the, the objectives of the translation. They're trying to, uh, they're, they're targeting readability, they're targeting paraphrase, they're targeting young people, they're targeting new believers. And so they've taken a little bit of the legwork out and just put who was from the beginning. But we need to be careful with that, don't we? On Wednesday nights, we're studying how to study the Bible. And you'll remember that the interpretive process is the second phase. The first part is observation. Observation, interpretation, application. And the more time you spend with observation, the less time you'll have to spend with interpretation. And so here, the translators have done a whole lot of observation and they're at that interpretive station, and so they've changed the text a little bit and said, who was from the beginning, just to help. And so it's important to recognize what translators are doing, what their objectives are. Some translations are very fluid and paraphrastic, like the Living Bible, the New Living Translation. Some are kind of in the middle, like the NIV. And on the far end are very uh, wooden and formal translations where you do all the work. The ESV, the Holman Christian Standard for the most part. The more time you spend observing, the less time you have to spend on the interpretation. And the more time you spend on the observation process, the more accurate your interpretation will be. probably think I'm going to spend way too much time on this, but it's very important for us to begin with this one little thing about this. What was from the beginning? What is John talking about? We have to know how to study the Bible for ourselves so that we understand it for ourselves. He's talking about Jesus. It's Jesus that we heard, we saw with our own eyes, and it's Jesus that we observed and we touched Him with our hands. And you'll see the word there, seen and observed. It looks like He's saying the same thing, but He's saying, you know, we, we saw Jesus ourselves. We actually saw Him. He wasn't a ghost. He was the real deal. We actually touched Him. We were around Him. And we observed Him. We saw Jesus over a long period of time. We saw Him live a sinless life. And we saw the miracles that He performed. We heard the teachings. And we saw how that was played out in His life. We saw Jesus die on the cross. We saw Him buried. And we saw Him rise from the dead. This is our testimony about Jesus. And so, as we look here, what was from the beginning, what we heard, saw, observed, and touched concerning the Word of Life. You see that phrase there, the Word of Life. We're talking about the Word of Life. Well, that little phrase is unique to a point. And so Christians have parsed it in a whole variety of ways. For example, it says word of life. And so they just assume that since John wrote it, and since in the prologue of the Gospel of John, he was talking about the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. And so they capitalize the word word. I'm teaching from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and it's a capital W. King James, capital W. In the New King James Version, capital W. 
But the newer version of the Holman Christian Standard Bible is a Christian Standard Bible. And it's a small W. The ESV has a small W. Because what they're saying is, you know, a long time ago in 1611, when we translated the Bible from English, from, from Latin and Greek into English, we put a big capital W. And now from, from, for centuries, we just think it's talking about Jesus as the Word. And only now are we starting to have fresh eyes looking at this passage and saying, look, let's go backwards. Let's start doing that observation process. What is this really talking about? So some Christians have the Word as Jesus. Some people have it as a title for God, Word of Life. But if you look at this prologue as a whole and compare it with the rest of the letter, so what's going to have to happen, you guys? What's going to have to happen is that I'm encouraging you to read this entire letter in a sitting this week several times. Try to read it every day. Don't read chapter 1 one day and chapter 2 the next. Try to read the whole letter all the way through several times this week. And what you're going to see is that it is the, it is the teachings, it is what the apostles told them about Jesus that's under attack. He wants them to hang on to that. These new ideas are being introduced that are changing that. You need to retain what you heard from the beginning. And so here, the word is actually the message about the life. Look at what the text is saying here. It says that the life, that's Jesus, the life was what was revealed. It's the message about the life. You need to hang on to what we told you right from the very beginning. The message about the life. Because it's the life that was revealed. We saw it. We testified and we declare to you. That life, look in verse 2, is the, the eternal life that was with the Father. And that life was revealed to us. If you want to put a capital on anything, you put it on the word life. Because it's talking about Jesus. It is the message about Jesus. So, what was from the beginning is what was taught to them. And uh, what we're going to see here is that this is under attack. And I know I've said that about six times now. But here's the reason this is so important. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the gospel. What are the, the most important things about the gospel? What are the main points? And he says that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. So those are the three most important things. But Paul is focusing on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Here John is focusing on who Jesus is. Because you see, these false teachers are attacking Jesus. And what's so important for us to realize, you guys is that the gospel is, is a closed system. And it has many components, but they are all interconnected, and you can't pull them apart. And you can't take one piece of them and begin to destroy it or change it or twist it, because what happens is the gospel no longer remains the gospel. And so here, yes, Jesus died on a cross. Yes, He was buried. Yes, He rose from the grave. But you need to know who He is. Who Jesus is, is critical. Jesus is eternal. He was with the Father from the very beginning. And what He did is what we have testified to you. This is the facts, the truth, 
that you need to retain. You know, you'll hear like an evangelist and he's talking, he'll quote John 3, uh, 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world and whosoever, you know, that for God so loved the world, it'll say that uh, whoever believes in him and you'll see uh, evangelists will work overtime on explaining what it means to believe in Jesus because you can't just make a mental assessment about facts and accept them and be good. Believing is something that changes your life. You know, when I, when I believed on October 18th, I prayed, I cried, I cleaned my room. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I testified to my mom and my sister, and I said, take me to church tomorrow. And my life changed. There was remarkable change in my life. It screamed, something has happened to Craig. And so an evangelist doesn't want you to come forward in a service and pray a little prayer and think you're good or to get baptized on Easter and think that you're good. There has to be this transformation of your heart. And so what's happening here, you guys, is that a key component of the gospel, who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us, who Jesus is, is what is being attacked. And so it's very important for us to recognize that this prologue is talking about how false teachers are introducing ideas that are contrary to what the apostles have testified to from the very beginning. It's contrary to their eyewitness testimony. And you know, you and I are very much like John's audience because uh, we believe, but we haven't seen him ourselves. Peter said this about us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He says, You love Him, though you have not seen Him. And though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him. And in John chapter 20, we remember that Thomas finally got to touch Jesus, and then he believed, and he fell on his knees, and he said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, You believe now just because you've seen Me. And Jesus said, Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen that's us. That's 1 John chapter 3, 1, verses 3 and 4. It's the ending of this prologue. In this prologue, John has two things he's doing. The first one is he's saying, listen, you guys. I know what's going on. I know what they're telling you. I know what's being said. And I know that things are being twisted. And they're being twisted ever so slightly. We'll talk about that more later. But I know what's going on. But you need to remember what you were taught from the very beginning about Jesus. The whole shebang. Who He is. What He did for you. Retain that. And then secondly, in this last two verses, He says... Because there's something in jeopardy here, and that is fellowship. John's gospel, when he wrote John, his, his mission, his objective was evangelism. You know how there's key verses in a, in a, in a letter or book that is like the, the anchor or the outline of the book or the key theme? 
Well, in John, it's chapter 20, verse 29, or verse 31, it says, But these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. John wrote the gospel so that people could come to know Christ. 1 John is written to Christians, to people who have already received Christ as their Savior, and he's talking to them about fellowship, remaining in fellowship. And I didn't talk about the internal and external reasons why we know John's the author, but as we move through this, you're going to see so much of John and the Gospel in 1 John. It's obvious that he wrote this, but he wants brothers and sisters to remain in fellowship. As we study 1 John, we're going to see these familiar words in 1 John that were in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12, verse 35, we are encouraged to walk in the light. And we are encouraged to remain in Christ. In John chapter 15, verse 4, you remember that verse. It's the one about that, that chapter is the one about the, the branches that are taken off and thrown into the fire. Jesus says, Abide in me. And as we've got this closure up here of this prologue, listen to what Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 11 and 12. This testifies to the authorship of John. It testifies to the authorship of God in the Gospel of John and in the first John. Listen to what Jesus wrote as you consider these words up here. John chapter 15, verses 11 and 12. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. You see, I told you that the primary objective of this letter, I'm closing, but the primary objective of this letter is for us to remain in fellowship with each other and with God. And I told you I'd ask you the question whether that was true or not. So I want you to ask yourselves. If you are married and your spouse is out of fellowship with God, how's that working out? You know, I'm saved. I am. I, I, I've received Christ as my Savior. And, and my life has changed. And I'm very thankful about that. And I have joy. I do. I really do. But my joy would not be complete if my wife was out of fellowship with God. And if my children were not in fellowship with God. And I have grandchildren. I've got eight grandchildren. One of them's ten years old already. Eli's a real sweetheart. He, he is a Christian. My, my kids are taking... Their grandchildren, my grandchildren are growing up in church. And I have joy out of that. And so I have fellowship with my wife. I have fellowship with my children. I have fellowship with my grandchildren. But if one of them starts to mess up and, and go their own way, it impacts my joy. My joy is not complete. That's what he's talking about here. Because... I have been here a short amount of time, and so have you, with me, and we have gotten to know each other, and we love each other, and I, 
I know stuff about you that I wish I did know sometimes, and you know stuff about me I wish you didn't know. But we know each other, and we, we have grown to love each other so much. And so I know members of your family, just like you do mine. And, and if one of us is slipping up or messing up or out of fellowship, it impacts our joy as collective joy as believers. And so John is saying, look, you guys, we have this wonderful fellowship, me and the apostles, because we went through this extraordinary experience with Jesus and his ministry. And we went all the way through the cross and out through the resurrection and him appearing to us and founding new churches and this incredible experience that we have. We have this wonderful fellowship with God. And we want you to share with us in that fellowship. That's why we shared Christ with you in the first place. And now, if you walk away in some fashion, if you chase after these false teachers and the things that they're saying, our joy won't be complete. So let's pray.